Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. Hello, good evening everyone and uh, thank you for joining us with this um, session on climate adaptation in the context of polyculture and the vineyard and its benefits and advantages. Um, fascinating topic. I'm going to read a very, very brief introduction and then launch straight into the questions and get going. Um, and this is only for those who don't know, but polyculture is the agricultural practice of mixing various plants and animals together in the same space so as to engender interspecies support. And it's not new, it's an ancient indigenous practice as we know. And it was the great green revolution that replaced indigenous agriculture with monocultures and chemical industrial farming methods, thus unwittingly undermining the entire point of uh, the industrial, of the entire, its, its intent, which was the preservation of food security. Perversely, it is the problems inherent in monoculture farming that have contributed to climate change and which have also rendered agriculture more vulnerable to the effects of climate change, such as drought. The tools of the monoculture models, such as herbicides and pesticides, etc., destroy soil health as well as its water holding capacity. Polyculture and its part in a rich, biodiverse ecological farming system is the solution to the climate crisis, climate, climate crisis, the food crisis, and even the water crisis. It is now widely accepted that soil preservation, the respect of this living entity, is the only way to truly sustainable agriculture. Now, this is something our speakers here today know all about. Um, Caleb, Toti, John, and Laurel. Um, those of you who are in the vineyards, could you please share with us your top polyculture methods and why you use them and what the advantages are. And Laurel, I'd love to hear about your, it's, it's a huge all-encompassing body, the uh, Land Stewardship Institute. I've been reading about it. Um, I'd love to understand better how it works within the, the viticultural sector and um, in, in the context of polyculture. So um, who would like to kick off the answer to this question? I can I can do it, Linda. So I'm happy to, to stop talking. You know. <laughs> uh, so first of all, thanks uh, thanks for this invitation. It's a big pleasure to participate in this uh, roundtable about um, sustainability, uh, better soils, you know, and all, all that we care about the agriculture. So first of all, first of all, I want to. Uh, just simple, uh, imagine what is poly polyculture. When we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about field culture. We're talking about ecosystem culture. So when, when, we've, been, when we've been going to the, this monoculture culture, even uh, with one spice uh, or one plant in a field, could be corn, could be rye, could be vineyards, could be fruits, but when we're talking about agriculture, I try to imagine the, the old farms. When, when, when animals, uh, uh, plants, uh, fungus all live together and, 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 the, and the farmer tried to, to join all, all this, you know, and produce foods, that's healthy foods. We are in an in a occidental, occidental culture where the wine is part of this food cycle. And I think to keep that uh, that love for the place, that aesthetic uh, view over the place, and finally quality is important for us. The polyculture, you know, uh, we took. I will give two two examples that we use. We we work in our uh, vineyard with uh, horses, with cows, with sheep to control the grass during winter time. So all these animals will lovely uh, work over the field, giving us his manure and controlling the grass. As well, for example, the bees, the honeybees, will help us in the botrytis control. Botrytis is a fungus that can be sometimes very, very uh, difficult to control in the, in, in the ripe fruit, in, in the case of us in the grapes. Bees will go over the, the, the ripe berries and will dry that berries who uh, crash and who start uh, dropping juice. So both animals, like uh, big animals like cows, horses, and sheep, or even bees, little insects, 
that will give to the field, you know, some help and be part of this big team that we are finally looking for, you know, to have a healthy foods. I think that's a very good definition you would all agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Thank you, Dottie. That was wonderful. Caleb, what, what do you, what do, you um, do? Yeah, so we farm about 50 acres of grapes with a small team in the Napa Valley. And we do, uh, we have some peach trees and some um, prune trees and, and plums and trees scattered around the vineyards, which uh, it's just a beautiful thing to see. The, the folks working out in the vineyards love to kind of do something other than vineyard work all the time. But I'm going to let John take a little bit more about the, the, the peach orchard and, and some of those, those things. But what I want to kind of hone in on is actually in the, in the background of your, of your photo there, Tody, what I'm looking at is the, the beautiful vineyard, but then the landscape diversity outside of that vineyard to me is what I want to try and bring from, from the outside scale into my vineyard. So I think for many, many years, we've always been very strictly trying to control our environment, put up our fences, use our plant protection materials to kind of keep nature out here and control in here. Uh -huh. And what I found in the time that I've been growing grapes in California is that vineyards that are surrounded by natural native landscapes are able to benefit from resiliency that other places don't necessarily, they can't ne necessarily harness. So if you think about it, when rain falls down, the rain is trickling through the forest above you. It's percolating deep into the soil. It's recharging the groundwater and you're not seeing erosion come off of the hillside down into your vineyard because the natural systems generally create a perfect ecosystem for the, the climate or the weather that they're existing in. So if I can take those models and look and see how the natural environment surrounding the vineyard functions and try and mimic that as much as possible and bring in Raptor, raptor roosts, bring in barn owl boxes, bring in native plants. We use a lot of hedgerows to try and surround our vineyards. It's, it's funny, when I was back at Ridge in uh, the Dry Creek Valley, there was, a, there was a part of the vineyard that was kind of like a muddy slough. And we'd always get our tractors stuck there. And um, like, God, this is kind of annoying. What, what, what else can we do with this? You know, I don't want everybody to keep driving the tractor in there. So we planted a hedgerow. And I think, Laurel, you might have been part of that. Yeah. That hedgerow was like a mile and a half long. So now instead of it being somewhere we got the tractors stuck, it's this corridor of amazing insect population diversity, plant diversity, and it matches the, the native plants that are there in the first place. So when I think of polyculture, I, I don't necessarily hone in on like the other animals and the other things that are kind of parts of other cultural farming systems. I look at it in the landscape diversity and trying to bring that into the site that I'm growing. So that's kind of our philosophy. It's how we choose our native grasses that we plant between the rows. It's how we buffer vineyards from other vineyards with hedgerows. It's how we try and create corridors for wildlife to come through or come close to the vineyards that we farm. So that's kind of what polyculture means for me. And that's how we've been utilizing it for a while. But yeah, super curious to hear John, your, your perspective on all this too. Yes, and very quickly, would you say Caleb that then we have to change or shift our mindset on what is considered an aesthetic in the vineyard. You know, we, we have somehow thought neat and orderly and immaculate and stripped away is, is the end all and be all. And it's not, it's messy, it's wild. It's what, it, you know, that's what nature at its best is. Is that something you would say we have to, are we nearly there? That mindset is well and truly gaining some momentum. It's a really interesting question. And I've actually seen success on both ends of the spectrum. I've seen really expensive farming practices in, in very eco-focused vineyards that might be gussied up a little bit more than another, but they're still gaining some of the, the, the impact. So say like they're mulching constantly under, you know, taking better care and everything still looks neat and orderly. However, they still are gaining the impacts of the hedgerows. I've also seen on the other end of the spectrum where it's minimal farming costs, minimal inputs, less tractor passes a little bit more wild looking and the vines are producing outstanding wines in a very just like true to the, to the, to the definition of sustainable fashion. I, I like to look at successes on both ends of the spectrum. I agree with you. I think that in general, we do need to kind of shift our mindset towards things looking a little more shaggy. Um, but yeah, you can put the level of input you want to put into it as long as you're respecting what nature has done and how nature can, can kind of be harnessed within the vineyard that you're working on. Excellent. So John, yes, and, and, and John, you also wanted to discuss um, 
you wanted us to bring up wine quality and social equity as the advantages of polyculture. So over to you, tell us every, everything you want us to, to, to hear. <laughs> oh. Well, first I have an admission to make and that's that uh, it, we essentially are for large parts of our vineyards monocultural uh, practices. And I hope that doesn't exclude me from the panel, but I think it's <laughs> realistic to point out that, uh, you know, it, it's just a reality where land is so valuable for the production of grapes that a, a very high portion of your arable land is going to be in one crop. It's just a, a, something we have to face. So how do we, how do we, um, how do we embrace the principles of polyculture and biodiversity in a farming system that is destined to be a, a economically uh, a monoculture. And I think that's where our uh, uh, experience over uh, 30 years now of, of trying to negotiate that, um, that, that paradigm, if you will, has, uh, has gained us some experience. We give about 10% of our usable farmland over to other crops, uh, productive crops. Uh, uh, Caleb mentioned peaches. We have peaches, pears, figs, apples, cherries, nectarines, citrus, and a few other crops. And, and those are uh, part of an integrated farm system that uh, uh, speak to the uh, social equity piece that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, another, in, in all, uh, in, with, with respect to other uses of the farmland, I think uh, Caleb was speaking uh, so uh, uh, eloquently about was, was, is almost farm specific. We farm about 200 acres on uh, seven different farms. Some of those are connected to forest systems. As Laurel knows, one of those is connected to a, 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 a river system. Uh, so we try to use what's already there and, and accentuate that with uh, native plantings and so on so that we can gain uh, the value of what's already there in addition to what we, uh, the other crops that we farm. And, uh, and uh, with the overall goal of um, increasing biodiversity and, and returning life back into uh, the farming system, we've been certified organic for over 30 years. And so this idea of returning life to the soil was very much a fundamental part of who, where we were. Uh, and as it, out of that grew this idea that we can grow um, uh, life in, in our above ground situations. So uh, we are not well adapted in our situations uh, to large farm animals. So we're, we're uh, uh, but uh, the, planting these other crops in um, developing uh, uh, native uh, barriers, uh, utilizing our forest uh, where we can, our river habitats where we can, has allowed us to um, bring a lot of, of fauna into the uh, uh, into the farming system in, in small ways, birds, insects, et cetera, et cetera, which we think is uh, very, very important. I think um, where we come down on this with respect to climate change is that uh, well, there's, you know, and there's so many important talks in, in the last two days about sun, uh, soil health and returning soil carbon and so on and so forth. Uh, I think with respect to mitigating climate change, polyculture uh, has a lot to offer uh, in that we know that vines are living sentient beings who live in deep communication with all the other species in their environment. And by having a more diverse environment, uh, much like with humans, um, the more diverse our environment can be, uh, we know that these plants share information amongst themselves, certainly below the ground through the mycorrhizal fungi and all the um, uh, flora and all the fauna in the soil. Um, but above the ground too, we, we believe there's a lot of interspecies connection and this builds intelligence in our great minds. An intelligent great mind is much more able to adapt. I believe that our great minds have known climate change has been coming for 20 years and has already started to make these changes. So I think that's, the more intelligent our thought. minds wow. are. I'm sorry? That's an amazing thought. They, they, they've known they know. They, they knew long before we are, and they're much. Uh, they're much less inclined to deny uh, their knowledge. And but I think the more intelligence we can put back into the farming system, uh, the better we are. Uh, uh, off we are. And so I'll I'll leave my comments for that for the moment anyway. Oh, have you read the Secret Life of Trees? <laughs> uh, the, the Secret Life of have Plants Laurel, is a yes? fundamental task. Uh, task. Oh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Excellent.
Um, so Laurel, I'm fascinated to hear because the, the stewardship Institute is just enormous and has got its thumb in so many pies. It's doing such great work. Um, what Thank would you, you like to add to this? No, really, what would you like to add to this um, question and this conversation? Well, at this I, point? It's great that Caleb and John both brought up the vineyard in natural setting or landscape setting, mm -hmm. um, because that's what I was going to talk about. And now I don't sound like such an outlier. <laughs> um, basically, when we do either our fish friendly farming plans, where we have like 200,000 acres of all sorts of different landscapes, or our climate adaptation certification, we look at the whole site. So we're not just interested in the carbon that's in your soil when you farm, it's the entire area. So we want to make sure that the way that the farming is done, the way the roads are designed, the way the creeks are used, are all going to support the ecosystem. And that the ecosystem is also going to support the farm. I think Napa is a very good example of what happens when you don't think about this and a fire comes through. Fire is a very natural part of our landscape, and yet we've completely ignored it. And look what has happened. It has caused very major negative effects onto the vineyards. So when we think about these things, we have to think of the ecosystem processes and how the vineyards can fit into that. John has an excellent example on one of his properties where they restored a major corridor along the Napa River. Nobody made them do that. They did it because they realized that they could benefit their vineyards by doing it and benefit the ecology. When you talk about climate adaptation, we hear a lot about let's get more carbon into the soil. Well, that's good. You know, um, there's ways to do that, but you have to be flexible. There's a lot of people that are not going to go to permanent no-till practices to increase carbon. And there's lots of science that says that's not necessarily the best course of action. When we start looking at putting in hedgerows, as Caleb was talking about, planting trees along ditches and creeks and different locations. If we wanna use animals, say you don't really have a place to have a corral full of sheep, you could use goats to control invasive species like French broom that cause more fire. So there's lots of different ways to get to a more harmonious landscape and improve you know, your carbon status. The other thing I want to say about carbon is you really do have to use state-of-the-art tools to calculate it. There's lots of belief systems, but when you look at the science, and I read 350 peer-reviewed papers to create this program, you really have to use something like Comet Farm, a high-end state-of-the-art model, because that's what's going to direct you into what practices on your particular site-specific piece of land are gonna do the best for the climate. And you have to include those hedgerows, you have to include your natural areas, any of your riparian trees you're gonna plant, all of those things. So you have one, again, harmonious system. That's perfect. I'm, <laughs> a lot of questions for you, that'll be for another day again. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the questions that I mentioned I was going to ask, I don't know actually if, if there's an answer for it, but I thought we'd give it a punt. Um, do we have a viticultural equivalent of the Native American Three Sisters? You know, would it be a, a, sh a sheep and a tree and a hedgerow? You know, what, what you know, is there, is there a magic combination or is it just a mixture of all of that? You know, the, the extra trees and, and some produce and some animals and some, you know, some crop cover. Um, is, that, is that something that would ever, is that just, organically happening? Are people finding their own combinations, their own methods, and as they go through this, this polycultural adventure? You know, the, 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 the indigenous populations had it in their own microclimates, had these tr trilogies of, of plants and animals down to a science. And I was just wondering if, you know, that's something you guys ever think about. Well, oh, you go ahead. All I was gonna say is I think that growing cover crops is, part of that, right? That's got that same alignment of, I'm growing the cover crop so that I can improve my soil organic matter. So maybe I can provide some more nitrogen. Um, so it kind of gets at the question you're asking, but Caleb, yeah, that's, that's, that's the squash equation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So there's a, I mean, first of all, you have to have the grapevine as one of the three yeah. Uh, yeah. elements, correct? So. We think about it a lot in terms of the three elements are the, the surrounding oak savanna, oak woodland, and then 
our, our native and perennial grasses that we try and use whenever possible, they're a big part of what we consider to be our, our, our method to kind of have a self, self-sustaining system that doesn't require a huge amount of inputs annually to, to, to match our goals. And that's a lot, that's by design. That, that, that kind of goes to what you're talking about. They had it down to a science, if you will. Yeah. We're choosing rootstocks and we're choosing trellis systems and we're choosing to grow these vines in a particular way that are going to be resilient to what we know is coming forward, which is dry conditions. I mean, the drought word is, is kind of funny to me. I've lived in California my entire life and every year I've lived here, there's been a drought in the summertime. It's like, it just doesn't rain for a number of months every year. <laughs> Granted, we're in a little bit more of an extreme scenario. However, it's something that we need to be aware of for where we're growing our grapes. So having these things in mind when we go in to plant our vineyards and not plant weak rootstocks that are going to need a lot of irrigation, going to need a lot of fertilizer, that are going to need a lot of passes to make sure that they work properly. That's part of this whole conversation is that making sure you're setting yourself up for success. So yeah, cover crops like Laurel mentioned, I mean, every single viticulturist in the Napa Valley turns into an agronomist come the end of the year. Because we're all just fascinated by like, all right, what cover crops can we grow? What does my vineyard need? Do I have too much water? I have too little water. Am I trying to get to a system that I can don't have to reseed every year? I can just put it out there. It'll naturally reseed itself. How am I going to get in there and, and spray in the in the um, in the spring when we have rains coming through when they're not not necessarily anticipated? And we need to make sure that we protect for mildew or other types of diseases. It's hard to talk about one little segment of viticulture yeah. because it turns into like this enormous into- conversation. But no, um, does, yeah, yeah, the cover crops are so fascinating. It's such a big part of California viticulture, I know, and in Chile as well. It's, it's a and that, that should probably be the starting point of any transition then, which brings me on to my next question. Tati, if somebody were trying to create what you've created in your universe down there, um, what would you, how would you have them, which first steps would you guide uh, a, a wine producer towards transitioning from a monoculture to a polyculture? So I think, you know, the, the, the big challenge today is the education. So when we're talking about the change from, from one uh, type of uh, agriculture to other type of agriculture, it's a, it's a must today to, mm-hmm. to teach from the base. So I think, uh, uh, I, in my case, I, I study agronomic engineer here in Chile, but whatever you study, you know, if it's in, a, in Europe, in the Oceania, or, or in the North America, mostly of the universities and colleges are managed by the chemical industry. So from that base, I think, uh, we need to teach more about ecology. Ecology is a very important issue. And when we're talking about ecology, it's a... Of course, polyculture will uh, take all this idea of understand the places, but the holistic view of, over the of, over the places, take, taking the the animals, the fungus, the 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 kind of soils, the the hills, the the form, or as uh, Laurel say, you know, how how the, the the place that ecosystem will be built over the nature uh, rules, of course. Uh, it's, a, it's a big issue when we're talking about that change from monoculture to polyculture. Today, for me, one of the, the, the big challenge in terms of uh, uh, fine-tune about the soil's condition, fine-tune how to build more life in the places. And all that challenge that uh, finally we're looking forward to uh, make a better quality grapes in our case could be fruits in the in, in that lovely places that John can have in a, in a, with different fruits in the in, in, in the farm but finally what we we must try to to push is to teach uh, all of us you know but from the base uh, about the importance of the ecology so that for me the the territor- uh, territory order uh, I I, for example, in, in, in our vineyard, we have lovely biological corridors, that biological corridors who are just creeks that we keep it and we planted with native trees. And we, we can see there how much life came to that places, you know, and um, all that uh, things and step by step that we learn with, yeah. uh, with the time. And it, of course, it's a lot of, uh, 
a lot of time to to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, so your the first step is education, making sure it's a yeah. holistic approach, and they all right. Um, that's very good. Laurel, does the institute have any grants or programs? Just on on what Toto was just saying, and perhaps even grants and helping people transition, uh, say from dry farming, from irrigation to dry farming, from monoculture to polyculture. H how much can uh, viticulturists come to you uh, and your your you know your body for for help well, in education? Yeah, uh, when they sign up for either fish friendly farming certification or the climate adaptation certification, we do a site-specific plan with them in which we discuss all these things. Um, there's lots and lots of places where people have put in, you know, what are maybe small changes to some, but they're a row of native shrubs. We are getting people to include pollinator plants, milkweed for our monarch butterflies, all this different types of diversity. <laughs> They may not have a lot of space. So say you have 20 acres and 18 of it is your vineyard. You don't have a lot of room in there, but there's always a way to do it. And so we specialize in recommending native shrubs that will fit in the space that they have, native trees, and it's always native. I get really <laughs> mad at people that go down to Walmart and buy eucalyptus trees or some of them. <laughs> like yeah, no way. Thirsty. <laughs> yeah, we want native. So yeah, we offer two programs that help people with this. And then we do work on grants for different types of projects so that they can have it funded. They can have the plants installed. And usually it's a cost share. So they pay to put in the irrigation because you do have to irrigate natives for the first three summers so they don't die. Um, and then they're um, gone. Um, We've gotten a lot of people off of water for frost control into okay. non-water yeah. solutions. It's hard to uh, convince people not to irrigate, although this summer might be the time because there's no water to use to irrigate. Well, that, that's that's probably a, a touch upon. That's the next big topic is part of polyculture and soil health, obviously, is crop suitability and making sure we are growing the right crops in the right soil, etc. And if we're, if the whole point of polyculture is to enrich our soils and protect to preserve our soil health, um, is, is an irrigation counterproductive to that to a certain extent and in, in, in so much that it's, you know, keeps our, our roots systems quite shallow, etc. And so to use your vineyard, you spoke of something about a deep watering irrigation or something, you have a special irrigation system. And John, you dry farm, don't you? It, it, so we have yeah. a little bit of everybody here in, in, in terms of irrigation methods. Um, yeah. I'd, lo I'd love to talk for a few minutes about the, the contrasting, you know, the, 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 the how you know, irrigation or increasing in irrigation is adaptation's greatest tool, but it's mitigation's greatest foe. So, and as Laurel's just said, one day the water will run out. So how long do we Good. keep up the adaptation with the irrigation until we realize a crop in our soil or in our environment is not going to be sustainable? How do we manage that in, in, this, in this context of climate change? Who wants to answer that? Well, uh, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. And I Yay. think that the f fundamental to it is understanding your individual situation. All farming is site specific, essentially. And to Caleb's point, to Tati's point, uh, you know, if you try to adapt somebody else's system to your ground with respect to water management or anything else, um, you're bound to fail. Um, and so, I, yes, we dry farm, but, you know, um, it, that that often involves tillage, um, it, it, not tillage. A lot of people, uh, it, this whole idea of tillage is a very nuanced uh, yeah. subject and, and very controversial. And so we have to be a little careful about how you're using tillage and what purpose you are. We use tillage to to dry farm uh, so that we uh, have no supplemental and, and, and we're being tested. You know, this year we got a, a 12 inches of rain. That's about a third of what we normally get in Napa. That's on top of last year where we got less than half of what we normally get. And so where we had started experiments with crimping, with dry farming, uh, uh, no-till uh, dry farming, um, we're, we're, we're having a look at those uh, systems pretty carefully right now. Um, uh, we're already starting to see the vines 
uh, putting up their arms saying, we're not sure this is exactly right this year. So I, I think even year to year, all these things have got to be somewhat uh, adaptable to your location and also, also to natural rainfall patterns and so on. I think the thing to understand about, um, you know, we're a little bit Napa centric here, Tony, sorry, apologies, but uh, uh, with respect to our experience, we're, we're in a, Medi a Mediterranean culture, uh, uh, climate here. So all of our rain comes in the, in the wintertime. This is one you, you want to do your cover crops. You're using natural rainfall to do these, but uh, to Laurel's point where we put in habitat, let's make sure it's the kind of habitat that only needs minimal irrigation to get it started and then no irrigation uh, afterwards. With the respect to our other farm crops, those are crops that um, uh, we've had to adapt. Uh, for example, we grow peaches and we were growing them for the fresh market to, to for the fresh market, they were um, uh, in an unirrigated situation. They didn't grow very big peaches and people would walk right past them on the farm uh, at the farm stand, right? Um, but what we found is they were much more intense in flavor. So we switched mm. from selling fresh fruit to making farm products for them. So all this has got to be adaptable to your uh, specific uh, location. I, I, I want to, uh, there was a question that I, and I've forgotten the question exactly, but I remember my answer. And that's that uh, part of this is um, these things cost money to implement. Our, our main job is to grow grapes and to make wine, to make money. And uh, it costs money to put in hedgerows and orchards and, and to farm them and to manage them. And so, you know, we think about the three E's of sustainability. There is no environmental justice and there's no social justice without economic viability. And so that has got to be a focus in, in all these discussions and then social equity, which I hope I get a chance to speak about as well at some point. Well, do you want to do that now before I distract you again? Go ahead. Uh, okay. Well, it's a little off. It, it's a little off subject, but you know, when we think about a farm, we have to think about the three E's of sustainability. And and one thing that we found with respect to uh, polyculture of having these other farm products was that the uh, came to our farm workers. Um, uh, great work is about nine, maybe nine, maybe you can stretch it to ten months out of the year. So you have two year, two months out of the year where you have no. Um, work for your farm workers or you're making up work. And yet, you know, the single best thing we can do to promote social equity in, in the farm worker uh, sector is to have full-time livable wages, uh, uh, year-round wages uh, and, and benefits that come with those. And we found that having a, a, more, um, a more diversity in our, uh, in our cropping situation uh, allowed us to uh, devise a, an employment system where we could keep our, all of our farm workers fully employed through the year. So we go from picking grapes to picking olives to pruning peaches. And, and we were able to yes. actually design our system uh, a, a lot around the idea of retaining our workers for 12 months of, of, of farm work. And, um, and so it, it, it's kind of another, just a little, how all these pieces yeah. fit together, I yeah. think is, is, is what's fascinating in all this. It is. Yeah, that, that's, and I, and I, it's obvious when you say it, but I wouldn't have thought of that. So that, that was a very interesting point. Going back to, go ahead, Laurel, sorry. I was just gonna add, make a suggestion and see what John thinks. With all the fires, we need crews of people in the winter to help with prescribed burns and certain types of ladder fuel clearing. I'm thinking maybe that's another way to fully employ farm workers. Good idea. My, my concern would be that, uh, you know, our farm workers are highly skilled people. Mm -hmm. yeah, people think of them as just a shoveler, or you know, they're not. These are highly trained, highly skilled workers. And uh, you know, I, I, I'd be like saying, "Wait, well, you're pretty good at accounting. Why, why couldn't you, uh, you know, uh, do something in another field?" It, it's, it's really different, uh, quite honestly. And it was, um, and we found that uh, it, there was a, a little bit of rub there in, in, in introducing the other crops. It's like. What do you mean I'm going to thin apples? I only, I only thin grapes, right? And so okay. um, they're very proud wow. people who, and should be. Uh, their skills are at a very high yeah. level. They'd have to learn. You actually have to be trained to do prescribed burns too. Yeah. So yeah. it would be another skill set. But I just yeah. wonder because we're going, we don't idea. have people to do that. That this, um, would you all agree that the disadvantages then of polyculture or are the cost of transitioning, the smaller yields, the... Um, what's, what's the smaller yield, Linda? I, I missed that part. Um, well, is, is one of the major... 
would you argue that one of the major disadvantages of polyculture are the smaller yields in so much that, as you say, you have um, less space. You're, you're, you're using your space for other crops and, and animals and things ah. like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, is it, do we have to also change the mindset of what is productivity? So uh, an organic biodiversity, um, biodynamic farmer can bring his or her grapes to the marketplace and yes they may be smaller like those beautiful peaches of yours but they'll be more intense they'll be healthier um but they're they're being weighed by the ton or whatever and that, they're not you know, how do we create a level playing field so that people can make sustainable choices and be economically viable that's what I has to happen it, isn't it i think a lot of that has to come down to uh consumer expectations and consumer education um, we've been used to walking into a grocery store, and I'm talking about more broadly in agriculture right now. The expectations on the agricultural systems right now do not jive with what we're what we're asking of them in on this panel, right? We walk into a grocery store and we want abundance. We don't want to see empty lemon shells, lime shells, avocados. Every every grocery store in the United States you could walk into right now and get almost anything you want, almost any time of the year. And what we're asking about is, hey, this polyculture, like maybe your, your peaches won't be on time, or we're going to try and work on using a perennial cover cropping system, and therefore that they're going to be smaller, we'll have less. We have unrealistic expectations um, on a large scale of what agriculture really is. And I invite people that, that like to say, oh, well, we should all be dry farming, we should all be doing this, we should all be doing that. To actually come out and try and do it with me? Well, well why are you blaming it's the consumer? So hard. The, the, cons the consumers can only buy shit on the shelves if there is shit on the shelves. If the consumers are, if we put into the into the, the stores what you want to produce, they'll have no choice. Sure, this is like a back and forth. I don't like that argument. Totally. Oh, the consumer wants this. Don't, don't listen to them then. Right, but that goes to John's point about economics, that's important as well. So I get it, like we can all start going this direction. And I actually feel strongly that we are, and we've already been doing many wonderful things in the vineyard that we're gonna start to become more vocal about. You're yeah. gonna see that from a lot of different channels that look, you guys have been talking about soil sequestration or carbon sequestration, keeping you know permanent plants in the ground, doing cover crops. We've been doing that for a long, long time and doing a very good job at it. And you know, people like Laurel, people like John, mm -hmm. and, have been have been championing this for a long time. So yes, I, your point is well taken that we do need to more be more vocal about it and do some education. But I'd also say that it's important that people understand how difficult agriculture actually is. And so they have no clue, easy. do they? Yeah. No, yeah. No. So that's the thing that I want to keep in mind that the farmers aren't the bad people in this and that we're not yeah. the ones that are trying to create any issues. We do want to be the ones that can help this climate change you know, catastrophe that they were in the middle of, but we also have a lot of other pressures and a lot of other goals that we're trying to achieve at the same time. We want to do it all together. And I think we can, it's just. But you, you can't, you can't educate the consumers all by yourselves. Can you? You, you can try, you, you try with little, little things, yeah. right? Like, so I, I did a really great trial when I was back um, at Ridge where we did some flowering and sectary cover crops. So the idea was to have a bunch of different flowers that we sowed on purpose that would, you know, flower early, mid, late, I did that a couple of different times. And granted, we did it on a small scale, but there were really great articles published about that work. Mm -hmm. And that work gets picked up by someone that may be growing 200 acres mm -hmm. and they try it on a small scale, a quarter of their farm. And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom. So it's about having the, the, the tenacity to try and go after these things and try some new things and kind of be, be able to broadcast them to other folks, not be exceptionally pushy with it. And, and but, but show them that it's working and you're trying to do new and different things. The Healthy Soils Project was incredible. That was some CDFA funding that allowed people to do compost applications, hedgerows and cover crop plantings. And we did all of those things and it was funded by that program. It was still really hard work and the growers still had to want to do it, right? There's money's there, but you have to know about these things and you have to want to do it. And that's where it takes people. Um, I mean, there's great organizations, the grape growers, the Vintners. Uh, I saw Stephanie Bolton's on this call from Lodi. She's doing incredible work broadcasting yep. all these things. It's coming. Um, yeah. And, and we're all do trying you, to do the best that we can to move forward on climate, quality, quantity, all the needs of the markets and the needs of the environment at the same time. 
and, and there's so many different things have to come together. Like I think Pam Pam Strayer just mentioned, you know, grants and subsidies that have to and consumer education. The, the, it has to be um, a holistic approach, I suppose. I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, climate change, the COVID pandemic, I think consumers have to be waking up to how things have to be done differently from now on. Uh, Laurel, how much um, are your educational um, programs? Are they more for the layperson, for the consumers, or for, you know, who is your target audience, or is it anybody or anyone? Uh, mostly it's farmers. Yeah. Um, you know, we work with thousands of farmers, and um, we also provide a bridge to government officials. So, for example, on healthy soils, we um, we work for CDFA to fill out the applications so that farmers can get the money for those practices. We also do, you know, much larger types of projects like water infrastructure, soil moisture, meters, all sorts of different things like that. And we do educational um, workshops. We don't really work with consumers. Um, that hasn't been something that's been in our, our resume. And I think it's a really hard thing to do. We work with a lot of fruit growers. I mean, one thing about wine grapes is they don't have to look perfect because you're going to crush them. <laughs> if you're going to grow fruits and nuts, they have to look perfect. And it takes chemicals in a lot of instances to do that. And so it's very difficult because of that market demand for perfect looking food may not taste great, but looks good, um, you know, to get a shift into less chemical use because the grower is taking a huge risk. So I would love to see more consumer discussion about, you know, well, what is what is food? <laughs> well, we have a TV chef named Jamie Oliver here who did just what you're speaking about, Laurel. And they called, they came out with a range of wonky vegetables and they went out and they, they were trying to try to teach the consumers that carrots don't always have to be, you know, perfectly formed and shaped. And now we are accustomed to go into the supermarkets and they will, they will have just, and they, there's a funny name for them, wonky or irregular or unshaped. And people have stopped demanding their perfectly shaped fruit and vegetable and it's working. Um, yeah. Toti, yeah. Toti, tell us about the mindset of consumers in Chile. Do you have the same hurdles as, um, as your colleagues in California? I think there have been, a, especially in this last pandemic uh, time, been a, a more sensible for the people who, how they are uh, eating. So I think people have uh, been uh, learning, informing about uh, what quality, how quality uh, or how much quality there are in the foods. Mm -hmm. in, in our case, for example, the wines is also very important. To the wine, you have a enormous... Uh, uh, offer over the market, you know, but you can stop analyzing the wines and you can see that many wines of, uh, many of those wines have a, a lot of chemical residuals in, mm. in those wines. So is that the food that I want to, to drink or, or is that the wine that I want mm. to drink with my food? Or, or I prefer to also uh, think in that smart food. When we're talking about smart food, is when we, we, when we put all around in this ecosystem in a smart way. So as Laurel say, you know, as John and Caleb say as well, you know, all that effort that we, we're trying to keep a best place, we're trying to be, have a good sustainable economy, we, we try to do a, a, an intelligent, intelligent way where, for example, where the vines, in our case, can be communicated with the microorganisms, the, uh, the mycorrhizas in the soil, they can be communicated with the birds. They can communicate even with the cosmos. So all yes. that view, you know, will, will produce better quality food, will produce smart food because vines are smart, because winemakers are smart, because growers and buyers are smart. So finally, that cycle, I think, is so important when we're talking about teaching consumers for me. I just uh, want to yeah. have a quick add to that. So the... The um, peach orchards that we manage, um, a lot of that goes to, to jam for our wine clubs, and they're thrilled to have something. Again, another way to get around having a perfect uh, peach is to make it into jam, which is absolutely delicious and such a wonderful thing to share. But we would also take, um, prior to the pandemic, peaches to the farmer's market, Jill and Steve Matthias, and would take the peaches there. And Jill would specifically try and make sure that all the kids driving, they're passing by, grabbed and tried a, a tree-ripened 
peach because when you go to the stores, you get stuff that hasn't, that's not quite ripe yeah. yet or not quite perfect because it has to make it through the distribution channels without yeah. getting bruised. So it looks kind of perfect, but it tastes crunchy and it's not a real peach. You wouldn't believe the stories they tell about like kids' eyes lighting up going, oh my God, this is a peach? Really? So there's the, there's the consumer educational part of it all that, that these are all pieces of it trying, trying to get people to understand what real food is. It might not necessarily look pretty. It's smart. I really like that term. I, that was beautiful. And, and John, you've been doing this forever too, with just real beautiful food that grows so well where we are lucky enough to live. Let's share it with people and get them engaged in this too. Um, it's, it's really important. It's really beautiful important. story. Do you, John and, um, and, and Caleb and Toti and Laurel even, would you say part of the uh, education process should or could include more descriptive bottle labels? I know that's kind of a hot topic. You know, should you uh, be, have to, to um, put onto the labels exactly which chemicals and herbicides and pesticides you do or don't use? And, and you know, again, one of the best ways, to, you know, consumers can't choose the, the perfect peach or the perfect apple or the clean wine if they don't, if they don't have the information available to them. You know, sh should the label say irrigated, dry farmed, organic, biodynamic, natural, you know, where would you like to see such consumer information go? What do you think is the best way to give them that information immediately so they, they can make informed decisions? Oh, with all that information, we could only bottle in magnums, and I don't particularly like <laughs> magnums uh, because they're a little too much I for one person and not enough that. for two. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you, uh, uh, Linda, have really hit on an important subject and, and something the wine industry has done a poor job with is, is, is understanding how to communicate uh, with our customers. We think that people read the backs of the labels, but they don't. We think they're going to go to our websites, but they don't. We think that they're going to... Uh, um, you know, uh, come to our wine dinners, and they only, they only do so in a few, a few at a time. Uh, so we, we, I think, but, but they're reading be... the labels. They, they they want their chicken to be corn fed. They want their, their you know their eggs to be free range. You know they are reading. And, and they want now. one. And they want one word on that label that ex, that reassures them that they're getting the right thing. And that yeah. is extremely extremely difficult to do. I mean, uh, we, we would, uh, Tomless Creek was in, so we're always looking for what's the next thing. Do we need to be biodynamic or used to be organic and now it's regenerative farming and, uh, you know, it's, it's <laughs> is it fish friendly or is it, you know, we're, we're coming up with all these programs and I think we're, we're just confusing them more, to be honest with you. I, I, I really don't know the answer to this, except that we need smarter consumers and, 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 and <laughs> I think we need. No, it's it's true. Yeah. Just like yeah. it, just like in these living plants, uh, we we need ecosystems that have greater information available to them. But I think we also need for our consumers to know how much power they have. the The climate crisis will not be survivable, except by everyone understanding that it's their problem as and, and educating themselves. Believe me, producers, even the most horrible producer you can think of will instantly change their message and their, and their methods of farming if there's a commercial advantage to it, which there really hasn't been in so many respects here. And so we're, we keep hoping that people are going to discover our brand because of all the cool things we do, but that's a hope against hope. I think really um, we need smarter consumers. We need consumers who, who care. Uh, I mean, I was in Florida just before the pandemic and, you know, the guy asked me where I was from. I said the Napa Valley and He's an Uber driver, and, and he said, oh, the Napa Valley. He said, oh, my God, that's where you have all that global climate change. And, and I said, yeah, you're so lucky Florida not to have doesn't. any of that here in Florida. And he says, I know that's why everyone's moving here. I mean, that's what we're up against, quite frankly. And, and so I, I, this, this, we can do all these things ourselves. We, we, yeah, we, we need to find a way to communicate this message to our consumers better. And I don't know what that is, quite honestly. Let them drink Conferences like this help, I suppose. <laughs> but we got 20 well, people on this on this session, right? So that's we're not going to change it with this session even. No, I, I guess us wine writers and stuff, we have to get a bit busier on this. But, but we don't invest in our wine writers. We, we you know, we, 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 yeah. we, we see them as free advertising. We, we need better wine journalism. They would love to write and edit better stories, but there's no money in it. But but I but even the, the few articles I've written. We're all subject here, aren't we? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I've tried to write articles about herbicides and pesticides. Editors come back and say that's too strong. You can't say that. 
So, you know, unless you just, you uh, seriously, you know, we're, 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 we're edited heavily. So I, that's why I just write books now. But anyway, back to polyculture. Where do you all see yourselves in 10 years? What are your next steps? What would you like to see happen? And what do you all, what are your own personal agendas for the next 10 years? Well, I'll, get, I'll get myself John. out of the way because I, I think there's one aspect of polyculture here that we didn't dis, uh, discuss. And that's that there's great variety amongst grapevines themselves. And, mm -hmm. and in Napa in particular has 87% of our, uh, red grapes now are Sauvignon varieties, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon. And, and I think that they're the, uh, where we see ourselves and what we're putting a lot of research into is developing a variety even within our own grape selections and Ruchlock uh, selections. So I think uh, it didn't come up in, in, in the discussion earlier, but um, that's certainly something we're putting uh, a lot of effort into. And then, uh, you know, where we can, uh, putting more money into our ditches and more money into our roadways and so on. Uh, but these are, these are expensive things. They take water and um, and they take a lot of time and expertise to know how to do it. Uh, Laurel's programs have been so beneficial to so many farmers. And we need more of that for sure. So I'll leave well, that. That's, that's, that's my close. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, who, who would like to tell us what you're up to next? Toti, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, Laurel, please. Laurel, Toti, you go. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. So just just taking the the, the same path that John uh, gave about the communications. You know, I think the communications start with the uh, with the uh, again the, that holistic view. So when we uh, been in in agriculture, you know, the 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 ability to communicate with the with the plants first of all, you know, in a sincere. And, uh, and serious way, you know, if we can communicate with the, with the vines, with the soil, and we, we can communicate how we do to the, to the consumers, you know, in an easy way, not in that way that could be very fashionable, you know, taking this as a, today, a, a, a big uh, commercial uh, tools, you know, could be biodynamic or be organic or be, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever. But uh, for me, the, the way to communicate what you do must be connected from the base to the, to the end. So in my case, my, my, my big challenge of doing as much better viticulture while making, but even today, the, 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 the big challenge of communicate what we are doing in the, in the way that we do and that uh, to give to the consumers, you know, something simple to understand, yes. and that uh, when we're talking about uh, to put everything in a in a label, I think we we must need a maybe a Jeroboam bottle uh, <laughs> to, to, to do that, that way. You know, I don't know in both sides, but uh, even you know, uh, for me the the future is keep keep pushing that uh, that fine tuning with the place, that fine tuning with the people. Um, in terms of uh, trying to do better, trying to never stop investigating and doing uh, better quality food, uh, better better deals, of course, that will mean better su economic sustainability. But finally, you know, all that you never stop because things keep changing. So if you find it the way, tomorrow will maybe not will be never the, the way. So we, we will never st uh, stop. Uh, investigating will never find the correct way maybe the world is changing just in this uh, last year and a half i think nobody here with uh, will think in in a far way that we will be uh, more than a year uh, everybody you know in quarantine and all these crazy things uh, what what will be for the future i don't know but i i, I think the best way to be connected is to be connected to, to everything that you do, finally, in your area. And uh, that, for me, is the, the main challenge for the future. Okay. Thank you for that. Thank Laurel. Um, well, I have a definite mission in mind. Um, <laughs> in studying up on this climate situation, what's become really clear to me is that the main sources, at least in California, of our greenhouse gas emissions are transportation, energy, and industry. Very, very hard to change some of those. The energy sector's done pretty well. But 
the place where we are going to be able to mitigate a lot of those emissions are on farmland and ranch land and forests. So I want to make the farmers the heroes of the climate story. And I wow. think that opportunity is there. That's why we developed this very robust uh, science, science, all encompassing um, certification, certification program. program. So that we so could have um, the farmers in a flexible way that works with the production of the crop, we can't forget that's their actual job, also be able to quantify the amount of carbon they can sequester. And not by forcing everybody to do the same thing, no-till practices, because that doesn't work everywhere. Well, as John was so, saying, it's always site-specific. Yeah. yeah, it has to be site-specific. And that's why we use these really difficult to use models, <laughs> that's all I can call them, um, so that we can get each site-specific plan to document the exact amount of carbon that you can indeed sequester. My other big mission is to deal with the fire problem because it's gonna kill the wine industry in Northern California if we continue to have smoke taint problems yeah. where nobody can pick their grapes. So we've been doing a lot of work on that. And, and I think, you know, just those two things will take me till I am no longer alive to do, but <laughs> I, you know, I really think farmers need to be seen as the heroes here because they are, and they have the ability to really make a difference. One of our listeners just said, Laurel for governor. I know, Stephanie, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> very, a very challenging um, agenda you've set for yourself. And I have no doubt that you will achieve it. And, and, thank, you. and thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Caleb, what do you see yourself? Yeah. yeah. I, I can't uh, thank you, Laurel, enough for your leadership and the amount of work that you've done on the science front to make sure that we actually are informed when we are trying to do the right thing, that we really are doing the right thing. So kudos to you and your work as well. For me, I, I would really like to, I'm infinitely fascinated by grapevines, the way they work, how they respond to the environment, the, the physiology of these, these plants is unbelievable, where they can be grown, all those wonderful things. So the more that we learn about them, invest into learning about our crops and our ecosystems and utilize science as well. We talked a little bit about irrigation. If you are going to use water, I want to make sure I'm using that water in the most effective means possible, whether that's investing in new technologies like outdoor misting systems that'll subtly raise the humidity and lower the temperature just for a short amount of time. If that has a bigger impact on the quality and quantity of my crop, rather than putting irrigation water into the soil, I really want to look at those methods and, and, and techniques to adapt to what we have coming at us. I think we can't stop thinking about we need to grow smarter and we need to be faster with how we react to what's happening with the environment. Um, I do respect the natural way that vines are grown. and I do respect the, 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 the lineage and the kind of history of it all. But yeah, we've got to get smarter and we've got to work with these systems in the right way to be able to, to steward these crops all the way through and to make sure that we're all still drinking wine and having conversations like this. Wine is, I go through this every now and again, where I think like, okay, I'm, I'm in agriculture. I love farming. I love the soil. I love being outside, but I'm growing wine grapes. It's like, well, well, sitting around and drinking a glass of wine, shouldn't I be doing spinach or, you know, something that people, but in the end, I come back to some of the best conversations and some of the best ways forward and looking at all the amount of people on this actual panel right now. Wine's really important. We pay so close attention to these grapes. We write down copious notes about the growing seasons and how things are changing they are the, the, the conduit, if you will, for how we're seeing the environment change. So for me, I'm excited about the next 10 years about keeping a close watch on these vines, how we react to them, how we continue to study them, how we work with insects, how we work with the natural environment around it. It's gonna be a fun 10 years. It's not gonna be easy, <laughs> but nah. gonna nah. Be, lots of great wine will be made, that's for sure. Well, and I like your, and I like your point, you know, I, we can, the whole other panel discussion could be whether or not, you know, wine is a luxury crop or indeed a necessity, but you're quite right. What other crop has had meticulous harvest notes, tasting notes, etc. you know, for 2000 years, we can find, you know, the, the, the Romans with their, the, their tasting notes, no mm. other crop we've ever grown has ever can claim, lay claim to that. So that's a testament in itself, isn't it? Mm, I agree. I do. I will say one last thing is that it's also important for us as viticulturists to expand beyond just focusing on vines. I know I just kind of went down that rabbit hole, but there's a lot of really great research going on in other perennial crops that 
there's no reason that we can't reach out to our friends that are growing walnuts, almonds, peaches, pears, plums in a professional manner for commercial markets to see what types of adaptation strategies they're doing too. Wine grapes have to be the poster child for leading agriculture in general, I think. Sure. Sure. I think I'd buy that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.